If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. Here we are on a wonderful Tuesday afternoon with Kyra Xavier. I'm delighted to welcome you to the real people in the psychotherapist chair. Welcome, Kyra. Thank you, Jerry. It's lovely to be here. So, Kyra, why don't you begin by just giving give us a picture of how your life is at the moment? Okay. A great deal of my time is invested and devoted to protecting the night skies and the nocturnal landscape. It's something very close to my heart and something that I think deserves more awareness and attention. So that's been a driving force for me. It's kind of taken on um, a life of its own. I had no idea when I began this journey just how immersive it would be. It started in my hometown and it was quite a personal thing for me. I love going down to the beach at night and walking alone and just losing myself in that environment. Um, It's been very healing for me in so many ways and I can't imagine my life without it. And one winter, a number of years ago, I went down and they had installed new floodlights in the rugby grounds and I was mortified. (laughs) I walked down what is normally my tranquil sanctuary of darkness and the whole beach was lit up and I'm walking going what on earth is going on and I was so distressed about it I was crying (laughs) and I could see the outline of the pine trees from the rugby grounds illuminated on the cliff face of Matanica over 500 meters away the lights were that bright And it wasn't just lighting up the waves of the beach, but also impacting the lagoon nearby as well, which is a wildlife sanctuary. And it was like, oh, my goodness, how did this get by? How did this happen? So I went home, started making inquiries. And just from there, there was a spillover of events where I just got pulled into this uh, need to protect that very special environment. And I was thinking, gosh, if this can happen in a small, sleepy little town in Waikou, you know, in New Zealand, what on earth is going on elsewhere? And so it was a very personal thing for me. And I got involved with a, a small group of people in Dunedin and it just took off. And then I found myself being what's called a, a night sky advocate. And it just took on from there. So you hadn't seen these floodlights being built at all you just went out there one night and suddenly it was well they have rugby practice each winter and they've had they do have floodlights but these were new floodlights that had gone in and had slipped in without any public notification because the powers that be felt it had minimal impact and I'm going minimal impact whose definition is that And I've used it as a template for an example of what not to do in numerous submissions that I've made, you know, in the past and such, just showing you just how detrimental that light is 
And you can see it even, you know, around the cove and Karatani on Hiriawa Peninsula. And they're like huge, massive spotlights. They don't always have them all lit up all the time, but it's enough to, you know, it doesn't need to be like that. And from that experience, there was this huge education on lighting at night and what what we really need to do to mitigate the impacts of light pollution. And it, it goes way beyond all of that as well. It, the, the whole scope of this is huge because every single one of us is touched by the effects of light and the absence of darkness. And so I find myself in this really interesting world because it started with this connection with darkness. And now I also find myself being an advocate for exposure to daylight. It's just as important. <laughs> it's just that for a very long time, darkness has kind of been delegated, relegated to the side. It's sort of something that just is like a lot of things in life, those things that are quiet and gentle um, don't get the attention and love and respect they deserve. Protecting darkness at night and getting people to understand the importance of exposure to our natural rhythms, it's something that it's been a part of me since I can remember. You know, this, this love and respect and connection with my environment and what's good for us and what nourishes us and lifts our hearts up. And this disconnect to that in modern day living in so many areas, we can just, anywhere you want to look, you can see this disconnection. And for me, that's really sad because things that lift us up and connect us and open our hearts and expand us, they're not the big sweeping grand gestures and events and things. They're these beautiful, quiet, still moments that we have that we can fill our lives with that make life meaningful and purposeful and just give us a sense of oh just joy at first it was like this is my beach what have you done but the bigger thing was is this is our beach everybody should be able to have access to this so the bigger picture is that this is our world this is how, you know, if it's impacting me, it's impacting other people, but perhaps other people aren't aware of it because it hasn't touched them in quite the same way. And so for me, I feel moved to foster and cultivate that awareness in other people. What, what does it do for you? There is this beautiful experience that when I learned about it, I thought, oh, my goodness, the wording, that is just so beautiful. It's called celestial vaulting. Now, I've only had it happen a couple of times to me, and the conditions have to be just perfect for it to happen. But it's basically where there is such good seeing conditions. There's no haze. There's no sort of atmospheric shimmering going on. And you get a sense of actually vaulting, of lifting off the ground, because you lose perspective and sense of boundaries. And when that happened, it was like, holy moly. <laughs> um, it was just like being lifted up and floating and taken away. And the few times where I've seen the stars so bright and so clear that I lose 
my ability to identify the constellations, those nights are so precious, it's unreal, you know, um, to, to see that many stars, to actually lose the familiar constellations. And so you never know when you're going out what kind of night you're going to have and what kind of experience you're going to have, and every night is different. And so that's what we're losing when we don't have that connection with that part of our world. And yet it's 50% of our environment, you know, the sky and the night. It's part of us and it's greatly neglected. And it just seems to me this precious, precious resource that needs to be upheld and revered and worshipped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know that I feel a great sense of personal insult and that I feel offended by what Elon Musk has done with all his filling of the night sky with hundreds, maybe even thousands of his satellites, as if the sky belongs to him and as if we should have no say in what happens to the sky um, and that somehow the technocrats and the technical scientific military communities that think they have some kind of right to um to uh what's the word it's it's i want a word like scrape or wound or in some way scar our night sky with their pathetic contraptions and whenever i see one of them flying over i i just want to blow them out of the sky <laughs> I I hear what you're saying. One of the reasons I changed um, my description on my LinkedIn profile from dark skies advocate to dark and quiet skies advocate, because that quietness, that's what you're referring to when you have those objects coming in um, and, you know, causing that kind of um, disruption to what would normally be this beautiful, pristine night sky. You know, this is ideally without light pollution. <laughs> that's that's our, you know, ultimate aim and that's what drives me is, you know, education about light pollution. But what I really love to um, focus on, because that's the gritty side of it, is what you and I have been talking about, which is fostering and cultivating this appreciation for something, this love, this respect, um, and I think it was Jack Cousteau, um, he talks. He talked about, you know, you can't expect somebody to protect something unless they love it. Um, you know, paraphrasing here, but to me that mm. makes so much sense. And so to have conversations like we are about the importance of this connection to something that a lot of people are disconnected from and haven't even experienced um, how do you instigate that kind of, you know, interest and curiosity and such? And it's like, that's what this role is. <laughs> we we basically live in a, an awe-deprived society. And there are a number of studies devoted to understanding awe because it's this remarkable emotion that's unlike any other. And I sort of get goosebumps just as I start talking about it because uh, it really, really lights me up. Um, they it, Other emotions can, will tend to dissipate. You know, you'll experience them and they're fleeting and they, they but awe, awe has the power to pretty much instill 
a, a lifelong change, you know, and it does so much more than that. You know, the, the studies talk about it encourages people to be more benevolent, more caring, uh, just it brings out our best, really. That's what awe does. And so everybody benefits when we have more awe in our life. And so whatever we can do to encourage that, is, and, and so dark skies is <laughs> one of the most beautiful ways to make that happen. You know, you start talking about how special it is and you get people thinking about it. And there's a very sort of an amazing thing that happens when people go out into the night sky is that they start to feel small and insignificant. And for some people, it's a little bit uncomfortable. But for most people, once they move past that, there's like this, oh, my goodness, you move into this place of appreciation for the bigness of stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, for, for, for me, when I mentioned earlier in the interview my walks are really healing when I go go for my wanderings because whatever chatter, whatever's happened in the day just fades away. It just dissolves and this beautiful quietness comes over me and this, oh, my goodness, it's like this full body sigh. And so this is just a shift, a really important shift. And this happens for most people when they go out and they sort of open themselves up to this. It's not sort of a matter of going out and looking up and just, you know, wondering and stuff. It's actually just being still with it and experiencing something that's unique to you. That's the wonderful thing about all of this. We, we each one of us, we're conductors of our lives, you know, the choices we make, the thoughts that we have, the words that we use, just how we move through the world. It's all up to us. And so you can have this really personal, beautiful experience with the night sky that's unique to you, just like each one of us has this unique experience or connection with light. It will mean, mean something different to every single one of us because of the experiences that we've had growing up and the experiences that we we just have in our day-to-day, -day, you know? That's why I do what I do. That's why it's so important. It's like, oh, this this resource, let's, let's do what we can, you know, because we lose that if we don't have that experience. We lose so much. It's not just for astronomers. It's not just for, you know, it's for all of us. Mm. I'm talking to Kyra Xavier, dark sky advocate, and we're talking about the importance of the night sky. And we'll get on to the daylight bit as well. I, I haven't forgotten that you mentioned that. But just staying with what you're talking about, Kyra, you know, you're talking about a connection with ourselves through connecting with creation, through nature through what is around us all the time. And you're talking about some profoundly spiritual concepts. And I think that the TV screen, the, the social media, all of those have likely seduced a lot of us away. But when, we, when we're in awe, and you, you said it, we're small. 
and we're insignificant. And that is the exact opposite of all this narcissistic encouragement that people are getting where they're walking around and they're not even taking photographs of the landscape anymore. They're taking photographs of themselves in the landscape and they go to a football match or or some big event and it's them in the it's not the event anymore society is encouraging a kind of it's inculcating a kind of egocentric human centric narcissistic kind of view of ourselves and yet what you described was so beautiful because you actually described what happens when spirituality is present, when there's a sense of the spirit of the beyond. We feel small. We feel insignificant. And that's because, and I think I use the word embraced, that's because we're wrapped around by something so loving and so enormous that that's okay. It's okay to be small and insignificant, and society wants us to pretend that we've got to be the important big person. And what a pressure. I mean, goodness me, if I was Lord and creator of the universe, it would be a total mess up. I mean, I'm so glad I'm not the big person in charge. (laughs) So I'm just sharing some of my thoughts uh, with you about the spirituality of what you're talking about. Where did that come from in you, Kyra? Where Where did that deep connection, do you think, in you, where do you first remember it? Or where does it come from, do you think? Oh, it's been with me since I can remember. Um, Yeah, there there was always this uh, deep capacity to connect and to feel. Yeah, Yeah. when I I started thinking about doing the, the interview, I was reflecting on my childhood and um, just one theme came up because it's been a theme through my whole life and that was this um, sensitivity, (laughs) this deep sensitivity. And it's funny when I use the word sensitivity now, you know, it's one of those words that's so loaded (laughs) and it's often loaded not with positive light things it sort of has this negative connotation. And that was what I sort of picked up when I was growing up. Oh, you're so sensitive. Oh, you know, it was sort of like a flaw. And I remember coming home from school, I think I would have been five or six, crying, and my mum just wrapping me up in her arms going, oh, darling, you're so sensitive. You just have to learn not to let things get in so deeply. And it was like, always the biggest mystery. How do I do that? (laughs) You know, there was there was no way to no one around to tell me how to do it. And I didn't know what to do. This was how I was, this was how I felt. And it's always been of utmost importance to me to feel what I feel and to honor that. And that's part of my integrity as a person. So if someone at school was being teased, I felt it. You know, if somebody, because when I went home to cry to my mum, it wasn't because someone had been bullying me. It was because other children were being bullied. That awareness of being connected and feeling things and knowing that there was this deep knowing, Jerry, just this deep knowing that uh, I guess a feeling of being looked after that sense of something bigger, something more profound operating in the world. There are a lot of people 
probably listening today who can relate to that sensitivity, that, that empathic sensitivity. It's not a negative thing. It's something that is that bonds us and makes us human, that we can feel each other is the very essence of humanity, that, that you and I can talk right now. And both in Monica, never having met before, but we can kind of feel each other. We get a sense of each other. It's very hard to put that into words sometimes. Something that's really um, delighted me as I've grown is this awareness that I can be really vulnerable and at the same time I can have incredible resilience. They, they don't have to be you know, separate. They don't have that don't have to be fighting with each other. And so I can maintain my vulnerability and my sensitivity and my openness and all of those other expansive, beautiful states, which is really where I reside. That's my home. <laughs> I do everything I can to nourish and support that. And at the same time, dealing in the real world, which can be very different to that in the in the sense that the values are different, the emphasis is different, the focus is different to the things that I find um, important and hold currency for me. And the way of navigating through that has been very interesting. It's been a, an amazing journey um, because I've, I've found myself stretching myself in different ways and finding that I can be so adaptable. And I get quite excited when I think, oh, wow, I thought I defined myself this way. And I've just gone and done that. And wow, you know, and it's just like, goodness me, we have ideas about ourselves and pictures of ourselves and stories. And yet we're so much more than that. And so when there's this opportunity that comes up and it's testing. It's like, oh, what's in this for me? What am I here to learn? What's what gifts in this? And there's this awareness of holding on to that openness and that uh, vulnerability and that authenticity and integrity that are crucial for me. And still navigating in that world. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm struck by you. Your impact on me is someone who has really grown and stretched and discovered new stories within herself. And I'm wondering how much of that is down to your connection with nature, with the night sky, with your connection, not just with out there, but in here at the same time, in, in your heart. Ah, uh, you just you just summed up everything in those two last words in your heart, or three words. <laughs> it really, all of it really does come from inside. That's the remarkable thing about all of this. I mentioned us being conductors of our own lives and orchestrating our experiences. And for me, the more I get in touch with my heart and the sense of love. Oh, even just saying the word, you know, you have to just feel it vibrate out. It's, um, yeah, I really believe that's where it comes from. And spending time on your own, for me, 
the amount of time I spent on my own reflecting, going within, um, just being, and especially the quiet moments, and also the moments where I've been walking, listening to music that has just transported me as well, because music is is huge for me, and that's part of that whole experience of just taking it to another level. You know, I go out and I'm just blissed out. You know, this is one of the things I've um, I just celebrate is this ability. You know. I'm constantly delighted and surprised at my own body's capacity for joy and delight. And um, there's one of my favorite words is euphory. And I kind of sum it up as blissful well-being. You know, it kind of sums up the well-being. It's not just physically, it's mentally, spiritually, emotionally, all of everything, everything. It's it's blissful. And so for me having experiences where I am in that state, that to me is what it's all about. <laughs> and those moments, those transcendent moments happen in the quiet, in the stillness, in the dark, in the sunlight, in nature. But it's the quiet times. It's not the stuff that's filled with activity and thinking and doing it's all that reflective. It's just like, wow. And so it's kind of the opposite of what society is telling us is important and the messaging that we're getting. And so there's this, you know, part of me that's this inner rebel <laughs> and uh, it just, just loves any opportunity to go there and explore it and experience it. And so I just get topped up by that. I just get topped up and it's like, my days feel so full and rich because of that. And that all comes from inside. And it yeah. gets yeah, it gets reflected in the outside world as well. But ideally, you know, where it comes from, it's that source, it's it's your heart. And so, yeah, that's mm. that's it's rather wonderful living in Wanaka because the lakefront. I'm beginning to realize the lakefront in Wanaka is a little microcosm of what we're talking about, really, because I go down and I walk and I sit in the lakefront and sometimes I meditate there and sometimes I just sit and eat a sandwich or sometimes I read a book or sometimes I just write a journal or I just go down there and, and sometimes I just walk and sometimes I meet someone and we chat and we do a chatting talk and walk around the lake. But What's really interesting is that what's lovely about Wanaka is if you go down to the lakefront, in amidst all the fun time boyos and girlies having their fun time on their little their little um, jet skis and their canoes and their wonderful sailing boats and and just kidding around and splashing around and swimming, you'll always find. You walk if you look just walk the width of the, the lakefront, you'll always find at least three people sitting in silence, just contemplating. Even when there's stuff going on around, you'll always see it. Now I'm just thinking that's quite rare. 
generally when people go on holiday, they go to a place like Wanaka and it's all fun time this and do this and, and everything. And yet Wanaka has retained this slightly contemplative, this very contemplative, mystical, you know, sometimes it might even be someone doing Tai Chi or it might be someone doing yoga. But it's that beautiful, it's like there's space on that lakefront for everyone. And whatever you feel like doing, and it might be listening to music and having a jig, you know, but it might also just be sitting there and no one thinks you're odd for doing it. And and that's rather wonderful. You made me think about Wanaka Lakefront in a very different way. Thank you, Kyra. So you're talking about people um, embracing the night, but you also talked about the daylight. Tell us a little bit about daylight exposure, because you said that you started off with the night, but now you're now you're talking a lot more also about the daylight. Well, I'm falling in love with sunlight. Like many things in today's society, things that are really wonderful for us, really good for us, have kind of been twisted and distorted and given a different story about how they might be harmful or detrimental to us and such. And yet those things are the very foundations for wellness on so many levels. And sunlight is one of them. And I've I've been really thrilled when I've been going on walks around Wanaka, seeing people enjoying the sun, you know, and tanned, enjoying it, you know, doing the exact opposite of what we've been indoctrinated to stay out of the, the sun and to cover up and to use lots of sunscreen and stuff. But I've seen enough people go, our ah, people are aware, you know, you feel wonderful when you have sun exposure, you feel something very special happens. And there's the reason for that. There's so many reasons for that. Um, the Evidence that's coming out now about vitamin D deficiency and its link. And I mean, gosh, it's infiltrates everywhere. Even glasses and contact lenses have UV protection in them. So you are being deprived of an important part of the visual spectrum, the light spectrum, because we've been told that UV light is bad for us. No, no. Nature doesn't do bad. <laughs> Everything nature does is there for a reason. And it's just we don't understand it. We don't have the, the understanding and the appreciation of the complexity of it and its different relationships and how it's interconnected with everything. It's way too complex for the human mind to even contemplate and understand and absorb. It's just too big. So what we've done is we tend to break things down and try and compartmentalize them. And then you've got a whole nother part of society which likes to patent it and manipulate and do what they want to make a profit from it. But underneath it all is this, this we have this beautiful relationship with daylight and darkness. And so the more disconnected we get from that, the more detrimental it is to our well-being. And so I can rave about the benefits of darkness, and we haven't even touched on its physical benefits, which is getting more attention now, uh, which is a good thing, but it's we need so much more awareness about its role. 
the same thing can be said with how we are getting disconnected. Like I'm, I'm sitting inside at the moment and I'm very aware that I have far less light exposure because I'm inside. And so many of us are inside for most of our day. And so those reduced light levels have an impact on every cellular process in the human body. And so we've got a lifestyle which is encouraging us to be disconnected. So the more that you can get outside and walk barefoot (laughs) and ground yourself, breathe fresh air, and not be scared of the sun. No, it's the human body has this beautiful ability. We can develop what's called a solar callus, which is we just gradually get sun exposure so that we get enough melanin in our skin so that we don't burn. You know, you don't need to burn. Uh, you can, and then you can enjoy sunlight without sunscreens. And so I would love to focus on the positive. <laughs> which is that we have this beautiful resource there, like we do with darkness, uh, that is healing and nourishing and important for us. This is so important, uh, Cara, to to dwell on this subject. And I'm very happy for us to dwell on this subject because the role of the outdoors in terms of balancing us and healing us and soothing us and helping us make sense of where we are is so profound. If we really, really took it seriously, took nature seriously, um, took the sun and the moon seriously, and many people listening do, we, we have an amazing listenership to Reality Check Radio. Some of the people listening are some of the best and wisest people I've ever met in my life. And I sometimes feel I'm talking to them and they know me and I'm talking to them. And so are you. And I think if people did take this, the power, the healing power, seriously, you wouldn't need any medicines, of course. (laughs) And there'd be no money for the pharmaceutical companies. And I'm I'm getting a bit of a reputation down here. I only moved to Wanaka because my grandson, he's six now, is down in Wanaka. So that's how I ended up here. And it's kind of a bit out of the way, but I'm building a bit of a reputation for a kind of a, a pilgrim therapist. So people come down to Wanaka now from all around New Zealand and they they come and see me for an hour and a half each day to explore their lives. But, you know, the most important thing that happens is I say, no, look, the real power of coming all this way, apart from, you know, the idea of pilgrimage, that we we go on a journey, and there's something deeply archetypal and profoundly spiritual about pilgrimage. I'm not saying they come on pilgrimage to me. They come on pilgrimage to their own soul's journey, I would say. And I say, look, the most important part of coming here is not talking to me or we do body work as well, but they go for walks on the mountains here and they come back the next day and they come back the next day and they come for like four or five days and we do this intensive and I can see it. I can see the healing happening uh, between one session and the next. It's just beautiful. Yeah. Uh, you've touched on something that that really speaks to me. And again, it's one of those things that is underrated, severely underrated, where 
Yeah. And it's the same. There's so many things like this. You know, the other thing that um, to me is greatly important is our breath and what that unlocks and what, and it's just like, oh my goodness, it doesn't cost anything. <laughs> no bad side effects. Well, there is bad side effects if you don't breathe correctly, which is why we have so many problems. But the, the remedy is to learn to breathe correctly and, you know, expand the dive, oh, you know, and it's just like, oh, my goodness, there's another thing. There are all of these beautiful things that we can do if we just start trusting in our body and listening to our body and rather than going ex- outside of ourselves. And again, it's coming back in internally and spending that time to having a trust in your body is one of the most profound gifts that you can have and having the the bigger trust because the natural extension of that is the connection that you have outside of yourself so it's not just in here but it goes out and so all of that it's just like this embracing awareness of again connection we keep coming back to connection but that's it it's all connected Mm. so (laughs) Anything that gets you into that space, anything that helps you feel that, it's got to be good for you. It's got to be beneficial. And those are the things that I just so enjoy talking about and exchanging with ideas and things because it's like you can feel other people go, yeah, I get it. I get it. (laughs) It's just, you know, checking in with yourself and going, is that true for me? And it's like, oh, yeah, that's true for me. That's speaking, that's resonating, you know? Well, I hope listeners are getting that same feeling because I'm certainly getting that feeling talking with you, Kara. And we're going to have to have you back again because we we could go on talking for days, not hours, but days, I suspect. And it's been so fascinating. And I feel like we've barely scratched the surface, but we have covered some really, really important subjects here. And... And I think the aim of this program has been to find out what makes you tick, what gets you out of bed in the morning. And I wonder if you would, how you would answer that. It's knowing the potential of every day, what it holds, and that it's up to me to optimise that. And at the same time, being wonderfully open to what's going to happen, you know, what's what's in store for me today. Feeling lit up and excited and moved by things, touched by things, feeling my heart expand, feeling in the flow, getting to feel the, um, the joy of my life and all the... Often I I have peak moments of of you free that, that just where it's just like oh my goodness I don't think my body can contain anymore it's like I'm going to have to expand in some way and I I sometimes I, I sort of glibly say to people I have to pinch myself <laughs> um yeah there's there's just that and everybody has that capacity it's in all of us to to feel that, to experience that. Um, I'd, I'd love to share um, quite a, a special um, experience I had with you. 
well, it's it's related to the night sky. I had this wonderful opportunity to spend a month in Hawea, and I was in a property that was above the plateau, um, away from the township, and there was pretty much no light pollution. There was just nothing. It was this dark, even there were no lights from neighbours. And I was very aware about this research that had come out about having no exposure to artificial light as soon as the sun goes down. And what happens is there's this really interesting chemical process where the body starts releasing or it produces elevated levels of a hormone called prolactin. Now, this is the hormone that is known for, um, because of the, the name for breastfeeding mothers, nursing mothers, but it's also the hormone which allows birds to sit on nests for extended periods of time. And what happens is when you get that elevated prolactin in the body, you go into a sort of a state of incredible bliss. And you're basically just experiencing that through your own body. And I had no idea going into this what was going to happen in the sense that, you know, I thought, you know, I'd feel calm. I'd, but what actually happened was life-changing. Within a couple of days, I was looking forward to when the sun would go down. And it took a lot of organisation because I was in Hawea in winter, so long nights, and I knew I needed to get rid of or avoid every single light source, including when you open the fridge at night. So I needed to prepare my meals, <laughs> um, no laptop time. Uh, and for me at the time, I'm a bit of a night owl and would do a lot of my creative work at night on the screen. And so it was like, what am I going to be doing with that time? Um, and But all of these ideas about okay, well, I'm going to have this extended night time. That means I'm going to lose those productive hours and that's going to affect the next day. Um, how is it all going to be? I didn't need to concern myself about any of it. It was remarkable. The more I stayed in the state of, of gentle darkness, the more productive I became in my day, uh, the more vivid my dreams came at night. Uh, it, it was quite remarkable. What happens is you get into what's called biphasic sleep or segmented sleep. And apparently this is how our ancestors used to sleep before the advent of artificial light at night. And so there's a number of historians that have looked into this and there's some beautiful books written about it. And so they've got paintings and pictures and etchings and stuff of what happened then. But it's kind of been um, forgotten about because it used to be so ordinary. And so what happened was they had this waking up in between the, the two segments of sleep. So you would go to bed a little bit after night fell and then you would wake up again. And when you would wake up, that was when you had the elevated levels of prolactin. So you were in this beautiful, blissed-out, calm state. And so they used to call this the hour of God. And so 
artists of the times, writers of the times, poets of the times would often use this to get that connection and that insight. And they would have flashes of brilliance and things. But they would be in this elevated state of, of harmony and happiness. And so for me, what that meant was I would sit and I would have the fire going because, you know, fire is fine. That light spectrum is natural. That's not going to upset our circadian rhythm at all. That's what we evolved with. So I would have the fire going and I would just be sitting and I would move into this beautiful place of quietness and all the chatter disappeared, completely disappeared. It was like there was nothing. It was just this beautiful, quiet, nothing. And they talk about this in books where they say that you can kind of leapfrog. To get into that state, you need like 10, 20 years of meditative practice. <laughs> and so that was some, one of the things I was really curious about was can that really happen? And yes, it can. You can move into this place of profound stillness. And in that time, it was like, well, I didn't feel any compulsion to fill it with activity. Like, here I am, I'm just sitting. Shouldn't I be doing something? Shouldn't I be? No. And so each night was slightly different. And I remember experimenting before I went to bed by having a shower in the dark, which was really lovely. <laughs> and um, quite interesting, you know, like, where's the towel, you know? <laughs> Um, but I would also just have one candle with me as well to guide myself around. But that experience was so impactful that I actually had a bit of anxiety when I was reaching the end of my month because I was so aware of I'm not going to be able to replicate this and I'm going to be losing this beautiful state. And I would have dreams where I figured things out in my head. I haven't my dreams aren't normally like that. So, but I had dreams where I'd wake up with a solution. Say there was a project I was working on and a concept that I wanted to explore, and it would just come to me. And so that's what I mean. I was actually more productive in my day. And the other thing I would do is I would do some yoga in front of the fire, which is a really lovely thing to do. And I would just sink into these poses with such softness and stillness. And I would stay in those poses and it's just like, oh, wow, I can feel this. And I would move into this and feel this muscle. And it was just blissful, so blissful. And that state of blissfulness would carry through into my day. Whereas what we have in today's modern world is we have the hour of the wolf at night where people wake up and they have insomnia and anxiety and they mull over the problems and challenges of their day. And it's completely different. The, the, the extremes between the polarity between those differences is, is if I hadn't experienced it myself, I I had no idea my body was capable of ex experiencing that degree of bliss. You know, you can, there's lots of ways to enjoy pleasure in our lives and such. And there's lots of ways, you know, and our bodies are just designed, you know, with our endorphins and things, they're there. But this was, this was quite extraordinary because it was just as simple as turning off the lights that simple. And that experience 
like you mentioned before about, you know, the feeling of having something stolen and taken away from us with the night sky, it's much more deeper than that. That experience that used to be part of every person's day-to-day, night-to-night life, it's gone. And all it does is is with the flick of a switch. Well, what an inspirational description of something that every single listener could find a way to do. And I was thinking how sometimes people do this, of course, by going camping, don't they, or, or tramping. And there's such a strong tradition of that here in New Zealand, which is a wonderful tradition. Um, well, it's listen. Tr- Sorry, it's. It, I just wanted to cut in there because it's really tricky with camping and such because of LED lights, right? You could only really replicate that experience if you had candlelight and firelight, nothing else. We have reached the end of our time, Kyra. Um, Again, I feel like we've only just scratched the surface of this conversation. So just around this, Kyra, I I would say that what gets you out of bed in the morning and, and what makes you tick is the word that you used really were two words. I think one word that comes to mind is an expectation of euphoria in, in your day. That, that there is some sense of an expect and, and a sense of awe in your day and a sense of the excitement of the unknown, the possibilities of being touched, and above all, a connection, a heart connection with with life. Am I getting close? Oh, you just summed that up beautifully, Jerry. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't feel that I had answered it as articulately as I could have. And you've just summed it up beautifully for me. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for sharing um, just one part of your life, Kyra, with us. And I'm sure there's so much more that would be wonderful to discover. But we are at a time. We're going to come back to you. Um, we're going to come back to you and talk to you about your music choices, which I'm really looking forward to. So, um, yes, Kyra, thank you so much for sitting for this hour in the psychotherapist chair. Thank you. Well, talk about surprises, eh? I was expecting to hear from a night sky activist and advocate, and instead came across much, much more in this interview with Kira Xavier. And by the way, if you want to find out more about her and her work, she recommends that you go to www.lightwiseguild.com. That's Lightwise Guild. Light as in light, wise as in wise, and guild as in guild, lightwiseguild.com. Well, what did we meet here? Well, I think I met, quite by surprise, a modern-day contemplative. And it made me think how rare it is to even recognize, and in this case, meet, a true contemplative. Contemplation has a very long history within humanity. In fact, there are contemplative communities all around the world, probably everywhere but Hollywood. (laughs) And these contemplatives are what you might call bearers of light, holders of the light. They access and feel called to work with the inner light that can be found inside each of us. And what's interesting about this 
is that we have this phrase, the dark night of the soul, which is a way of talking of the growth and the light that can be found in suffering, in trauma, in the darkness. And what we heard from Kyra was the power of spending time. It was an invitation, an inspiration to spend time on our own, to contemplate the night sky. Did you hear her description? Celestial vaulting. Wow. Celestial vaulting. She said that on some occasions, when the night sky is so clear and she cannot even count or recognize the familiar constellations, that we can lose our bearing. We can lose all our earthly reference points and become immersed in the greater, the unknown. And in that discussion, I wonder if you recall how she highlighted that sense of how small and insignificant we can feel. But that's okay, because if we get over ourselves and get beyond ourselves or go into ourselves, we realize that we are wrapped around, embraced, if you like, by divine love. Different religious traditions have different words for that and different ways of describing that. Different contemplatives will have a different language. It seems that only by embracing the darkness can we find the light. And very interesting to me was the emphasis that Kyra made on our own hearts, that we were both going inward as well as being connected with the outward. That in fact, the night sky for Kyra and indeed the daylight was a way of connecting into the heart. And one of her phrases was that the source of all is in our heart. And she had this word called euphory, which comes from euphoria. But I rather like euphoria. I'd never heard anyone use the, the word euphoria in that way. And I really liked the way that when she said euphory, it sounded like you're free. <laughs> you're free. The freedom of the spirit or the soul. And isn't it interesting these days how much conversation now is revolving around the soul or our spirituality? It's almost as if the denizens of evil that have been trying to run humanity for goodness knows how long, is as if they've been outed. And in the process, many of us are coming to realize that being human is to be divine, to be connected to something beyond the mere physical into the realm of the spiritual. And when Kyra talked about euphory, as in euphoria, it connected my thinking with the work of psychotherapy. Psycho actually is the Greek word for soul, and therapia is the Greek word for healing. Psychotherapy was once soul healing before it was taken over by materialists and existentialists who made it all about pathology and sickness. But soul healing has always been at the heart 
of what I think uh, well-being is all about. Even in psychiatry, again, that word psyche and iatros, which is like doctor, iatrogenic death is death by doctor, which is the third leading cause of death, by the way, not that anyone's going to tell you about that. Drug death, actually. But psychiatrists, psychiatry, soul doctors, the psychiatrists, they use Greek words for things like depression. Back in the day, it wasn't called depression. It was called dysphoria. So we get dysphoria and euphoria. Two opposite words, dysphoria meaning depression and euphoria meaning well-being. And in the psychological work that we're doing, we talk a lot about depression, but we don't talk about what replaces it. <laughs> well, where are we going with our depression? Well, I think we're going for the light. I think we're heading out of the darkness. Or we go into the darkness in order to find the inner light, the euphoria. Interesting, the word phoria means to carry or to bear a burden. And Hippocrates actually wrote about euphoria in terms of bearing a wound and recovering from a wound. So the word euphoria links to bearing well. U-E-U -E means well in Greek. So you've got bearing well is euphoria. Euphoric, euphory, which is very close, isn't it, to resilience, the capacity to cope well with setbacks, with trauma, with stress. Our capacity to bear well. And when we think about bearing well or euphory or you're free, what is really interesting to me is the way that Kyra was talking about how we all have the capacity for euphoria, for bearing well, for resilience. And it's much, much more than the simple physical, biochemical processes, like talking about oxytocin or prolactin or endorphins. We're talking here about the spirit or the soul bearing well. And one colleague of mine talked about soul bathing, bathing the soul. And isn't that what Kyra was inviting us, inspiring us to do, which is to literally bathe in the night sky, to go into the darkness? And what gives us strength, what gives us resilience, she was saying very clearly, is to find time on our own, take the risk of facing that insignificant ego smallness in order to go through that and discover that we are connected and wrapped around by something far greater than we can even verbalize, although religions have tried. And without this soul bathing, we're not going to find resilience. Without going into the quiet places to find our euphory, we're not going to find our resilience. That there is this innate capacity within each of us to be still, to go into that still space, that gentle night into that darkness in order to find resilience.
And many of you are aware that my interest has been for my whole life and the role of touch and the body in soothing the nervous system and helping us to build resilience. But there's a profound spirituality to touch that links in here. I'm not sure I can articulate it all that well. But sometimes when the right touch is given in the right circumstances, it's as if we can access our euphory. And another very similar psychiatric term from a long time ago, instead of dysphoria for depression, they used the word dysthymia. And that used to be dysthymic, is still used actually for the idea of depression. But that's interesting because thymic or thymia means spirit. So an unhappy spirit is another way to look at depression. How interesting would it be to go to a doctor or a psychiatrist and they say, your spirit is unhappy? Now, wouldn't that just put a different slant on our loss of meaning these days, of our loss of purpose, of our loss of community? And I believe we're breaking out in the chaos and catastrophe of all that has gone on. What is breaking out is humanity. And one aspect of our humanity is our spirit. And so just as there was a word for euphoric and dysphoric, so with dysthymia, depression of the spirit, if you like, there was euthymia, wellness of the spirit. And back in the first century, the Roman writer Seneca wrote about euthymia. And he defined euthymia as the following as believing in yourself and trusting you are on the right path and not being in doubt by following the myriad footpaths of those wandering in every direction. Do you see that certainty, that innate sense of purpose and truth within each and every one of us? Let me read that again, because I, I love this description of euthymia, of spirit wellness. Listen to how it's related to purpose. Believing in yourself and trusting you are on the right path and not being in doubt by following the myriad footpaths of those wandering in every direction. I wonder if that does for you anything like what it does for me. And the second topic I wanted to talk about today was the concept of the night as dark. Kyra talked about listening to the gentle darkness, being in the gentle darkness and hearing the still voice. And I think she's describing one of the most common spiritual quests of contemplatives the world over and throughout history, which is to embrace the darkness. And in fact, one of psychology's greatest writers and teachers was Carl Gustav Jung. He was a student of Freud's for a while. He talked about the shadow self that we all carry, a shadow self, a darker self, sometimes seen as a more malign or destructive self. But unless we can embrace that, and that's why very often in psychotherapy we're talking about dreams, particularly those dreams that concern us or are disturbing to us, unless we can face the shadow, sit, as you like, in the dark, 
we can't really enjoy the day. And isn't it interesting how Kyra is now an advocate of the day, all her work with the night and the night sky and her love of that special space has produced in her a greater appreciation of the day. And wasn't it interesting when she talked about the biphasic nature of ancient humanity and where we could find this blissful hour, and she talks about the prolactin there, but this middle-of-the-night hour where people would wake, and they called it the hour of God. It wasn't the hour of the narcissistic self. It wasn't a selfie by the fire. <laughs> no, no, it was contemplation of the beyond the bigger picture. And that made me think what a great tradition there has been, even within Christianity. In the nighttime, in the monastic tradition, they used to get up in the night and say their prayers. So not so ancient after all, actually, still going on today. And these nighttime prayers culminated in the celebration of the dawn called Lords. And Lords L-A-U-D-S, comes from Laudate, the Latin for praise. And it was based on the last three Psalms, 148, 149, and 150, all of which begin with the word praise, Laudate. So I think there's a beautiful how-to in what Kyra has gifted to us. And I think that how-to is very much about sitting in the dark, embracing the dark, using candles, natural firelight, the night sky, and stillness, and using that to sit and listen, and using that as a resource for our innate resilience. And this innate resilience within each of us is what I wanted to talk about as my third topic. Tuning in to a capacity that we're all born with, innate, in natus, natus means birth. We're born with this innate capacity to access our resilience. And we can access it through breath. We can access it in our body through movement and touch. We can access it through nature. And it's our innate sense, and that's the innate sense of right or wrong. Our ability to discern when we're being conned or tricked, comes from this place. And what was beautiful about Kyra's talk was that this is available to every single one of us, and that we all have the capacity to find the hidden potential. She would have said the hidden joy, the bliss in every day, the unknown excitement for each day. And I always like to recommend some kind of book or something that you might find useful to follow up on this material. And I cannot think of a better book than Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, written by someone who was in Auschwitz, and his reflections on how to find meaning even in the most terrible of circumstance. Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. Frankl is spelled F-R-A-N-K-L, Viktor Frankl. He developed a whole school of psychology based on meaning-making. And I would say that most of my work has very little to do with pathology or sickness, but it's really about each person's search for their own truth, that if I do anything, I help people find their meaning 
and to explore and identify their own purpose. I wonder if you remember Kyra saying that we can all become conductors of our own lives. And that put me in mind, not just of Viktor Frankl's book, but also of a wonderful poem. You may have come across this poem because it was the title of a really wonderful film about Nelson Mandela called Invictus. Well, Invictus is the poem that Nelson Mandela went back to again and again in his decades of imprisonment. And this poem was by a 19th century guy called William Henley. There's a bit of an interesting backstory to this poem as well, because it's a poem about the unconquerable human spirit. No matter what happens to us, it's a story about the power of humanity's spirit. How did he access this amazing insight, this beautiful poem, which I'm going to read in a second? Well, he had one foot amputated. But he heard about this surgeon called Joseph Lister, who was up in Edinburgh. So he traveled up to Edinburgh and he put himself under Joseph Lister's care. And he had to have operation after operation on his other leg because there was TB in the bone. It was crumbling and it was not going to make it. And Lister operated. Lister, of course, famous for antiseptic surgery, the use of carbolic acid to make surgery safe, stop pathogens entering directly into the bloodstream. Of course, today we seem to be interested in how to put as many pathogens into people's bloodstreams, but that's another subject. <laughs> but back to Invictus by William Henley. William Henley was visited by Robert Louis Stevenson. He became a very good friend and advocate of William Henley. You know, while the romantic Victorian poets were having their opium dreams and glorifying the beauty of nature... William Henley was stuck in an Edinburgh hospital, having his bones broken and, and operated on repeatedly for 20 months. A kind of torture. And he spoke so highly of the man who was causing him the suffering, Joseph Lister, the hero doctor. And Robert Louis Stevenson, who is, of course, the author of Treasure Island, used William Henley as a partial model for Long John Silver in Treasure Island. But Robert Louis Stevenson admired and valued and promoted William Henley, who later on in life, he became a top editor of literary magazines. He was known for encouraging and helping many, many great writers of the time, Thomas Hardy being one that I can think of. And out of this 20 months in hospital and this heroic doctor, he wrote this poem called Invictus. I'm just going to read the last four stanzas from this, but this is about the human spirit, why we need to focus on soul or spirit, why psychotherapy, psychiatry, psychology, all about the soul, although you wouldn't know it by common modern medical practice. Here's the last four stanzas of William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus. And I read it to finish my reflections and to inspire you for your day and your week. Out of the night that covers me. There it is. I've got to stop there. <laughs> I've forgotten that was the first line here. <laughs> We've just been talking about the night, haven't we? Ugh, start again. <laughs> Out of the night that covers me. Black as the pit from pole to pole, 
I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So there you have it. Those are my reflections inspired by that session with Kyra. If Reality Check Radio enriches your day in life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and the dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. <laughs>